that's that. Y'all ever had deja vu? Um, so, what did you say? All over again? Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Deja vu all over again. Yeah. So, I kind of had it just a minute ago. You know, it's like trying to get people to find their seats after we have a greeting time. It's like deja vu every time. Uh, same thing. Uh, uh, no, but seriously, though, um, deja vu is a re- very real thing. And if you don't know what it is, um, I, I don't. I mean, I think most people do, but if you don't, it's like you have this experience where it seems like you're, you're experiencing something you've previously experienced, like the same thing is happening. Um, if, how many, this is a weird question. How many of you have seen the movie, The Matrix? Okay. Um, I'm not going to get into the whole Matrix thing, um, but the movie The Matrix, uh, there's, this, there's the idea of deja vu, and they say it's a glitch in the system, right? So it's just repeating itself. I don't think that's what really happens. Um, but I, I've had deja vu. Now, the weirdest things that happen are whenever you have those moments, and you just know that you've had those, and you say, I'm having a serious case of deja vu right now. And that's part of it. Like, then you remember saying that, and then everything, it's the weirdest thing. So I, I have had a lot of those, and the reason I tell you that is because today you guys might have a case of deja vu. Um, today, as we go to God's Word, and if you have a copy, I would invite you to open it with us. We're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 29, and we're going to roll over into chapter 16. But um, if you want to pick up a Bible, and I would encourage you to do so, that's where we're going to be. Um, but the reason I bring this up is because you may have deja vu today. Um, today, we're going to talk about the feeding of the 4,000. And you might be thinking, well, didn't we just talk about Jesus miraculously multiplying food and feeding thousands of people? And the answer is yes, we did just a few weeks ago. And the reason we're going to talk about it again is because Jesus does the same thing. He does the same thing. Before, he fed 5,000. This time, he's going to feed 4,000. Okay, And there's a lot of reasons to believe these are not the same instance. It's not like it's just a copyist error. No, these are not the same thing. These are two totally different two totally different events, and it's important that we recognize that they're different. And hopefully that becomes clear as we go through this. But what I want us to see today as we work through this text is really some important things about Jesus' ministry of calling people to himself. Um, some very important things that not only does, do I think Matthew points out, but I think we need to remember as we start thinking about how, how do we go to people around us? Why do we go to people around us? If Jesus is calling people to himself, I think we need to know these things. So um, I would invite you all. I know you've been up and down about 15 times. We're going to do it one more time. Well, maybe two more times. Maybe three. I don't know. We'll see. Um, anyway, I'm not making promises. But let's read God's word together, and then we'll dive in. Matthew chapter 15, beginning in verse 29. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. It says, <clears throat> moving on from there, Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee. He went up on a mountain and sat there. A large crowd and large crowds came to him, including the lame, the blind, the crippled, those unable to speak, and many others. They put them at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd was amazed when they saw those unable to speak talking, the crippled restored, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they gave glory to the God of Israel. Jesus called the disciples and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've already stayed with me three days and have nothing to eat. I don't want to, I don't want to send them away hungry. Otherwise they might collapse on the way. The disciple said to him, where could we get enough bread in this desolate place to feed such a crowd? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked them. Seven, they said, and a few small fish. After commanding the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. They all ate and were satisfied. 
they collected the leftover pieces, seven large baskets full. Now, there were 4,000 men who had eaten besides women and children. After dismissing the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. The Pharisees and Sadducees approached and tested him, asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, When evening comes, you say, It will be good weather because the sky is red. And in the morning, today will be stormy because the sky is red and threatening. You know how to read the appearance of the sky, but you can't read the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Then he left them and went away. The disciples reached the other shore, and they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus told them, Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They were discussing this among themselves. We didn't bring any bread. (laughs) Aware of this, Jesus said, You of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves that you do not have bread? Don't you understand yet? Don't you remember the five loaves and the 5,000 and how many baskets you collected? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many large baskets you collected? Why is it that you don't understand that when I told you, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, it wasn't about bread? Then they understood that he had not, been, or he had not told them to beware of the leaven and bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Thank God for his word. You may be seated. Now let's pray. Let's pray together. Lord God, um, as, we, as we open your word today, I, I pray that you would guide us, uh, that you would direct us. Lord, we, we tend to think that we're pretty capable on our own of, of understanding various things, of doing different things. But Lord, the truth is that if we don't rely on you, we can't understand the things of God. Uh, so Lord, I pray that you would teach us today. Um, that you would guide us into this truth and that you would show us how you drew men to yourself and how you're still drawing people to yourself. So, Lord, let us see this. Let us see these, these simple principles and then turn and go to a lost world and, and see the kingdom expand. So, Lord, uh, I just pray that you would change us today and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So these, these two factors, as we read through this, um, I, I'm just going to break this down into two important factors in Jesus' ministry of drawing men to himself. And the first thing we need to understand is that Jesus' invitation, Jesus' invitation extends to all peoples. Now, that sounds very, very elementary, but I sometimes think we don't get it. Um, that may be very elementary, but it is incredibly important. See, verse 29 Verse 29 picks up and it says, moving on from there, Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, went up on a mountain and sat there and large crowds came to him, including the lame, the blind, the crippled, those who, uh, those unable to speak and many others. And they put him at his feet and Jesus healed them. Now, I think it's good to remember that this is, these are real events in real time and real space. So um, I think it's helpful if we can actually look at this map and actually understand where we are. Now, I know that's pretty small, but it's because I want to, I want to help you see that this is a real space and this actually covers the space that we need. Okay. And the first, first thing we need to remember is that last week where Matthew was writing about, he said that Jesus was in the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, Tyre and Sidon are right up here. There are these two cities, and I know it looks shaky, but it's right there. All right, and this is the Sea of Galilee, okay? So Tyre and Sidon up here to the northwest of the Sea of Galilee, and that's where Jesus was. That's where this Canaanite woman approached Jesus and, and cried out for help for her daughter, and Jesus healed that daughter. Um, now, what we need to remember about last week, though, is that this is, this is Gentile territory, this is not Jewish territory. 
Um, see, the Jewish territory actually comes down here around the Sea of Galilee and on south on this side of the Jordan River. See, now the reason that's important is because as Jesus passes along the Sea of Galilee, he's going to come from Tyre and Sidon, and he's going to come down across the Sea of Galilee, down here, most likely, this is where most scholars believe that the feeding of the 4,000 happens, down here into this area where it says 10 towns here. It's an area known as the Decapolis. Okay, there are these 10 cities here, which are, again, outside of Jewish territory. This is not a Jewish people who live here. All right, and that's going to be important as we get into this, and hopefully you'll see why as we get this. Now, this is not the same place that the feeding of the 5,000 happened. Feeding of the 5,000 happened in Jewish territory. One of the many reasons this is not the same event. We'll get there in just a moment, though. So last week, we saw Jesus. He told this Canaanite woman that she was a dog who didn't deserve his blessing. Y'all remember that? Does that sound vaguely familiar to any of you? And this week, Jesus goes up on this mountain. He sits down and crowds of people start coming his way. And it's not just any crowd. This is a mess of broken, needy, and unclean people who are all swarming towards Jesus. Broken, needy, and unclean people coming to Jesus. And rather than fleeing from them or turning them away, he had compassion on them and he healed them. Compassion and he healed them. Verse 31 after he heals them, it says, So the crowd was amazed when they saw those unable to speak, talking, the crippled, restored, the lame, walking, the blind, seeing, and they gave glory to the God of Israel. Now, whenever I, whenever I read this, I, I first I thought, okay, well, yeah, can Jesus heal these people? Of course he can. Jesus, he's God. Of course he can. Can God still heal, heal people? Sure he can. But, but I, I think it's important that we ask ourselves, what was the purpose what was the purpose of him healing these people? What was the idea? Was this so that people would live happy lives so that they could skip around and cheer and do all that stuff? Well, yes, but no. Um, sure, God wanted people to live good lives, but the purpose was found in the very last line there. And if you didn't catch it, it was to give glory to the God of Israel. The purpose was to glorify God. Now, I thought about this in, in my own life, and how often do I actually go and pray that God would do something for somebody so that he would be glorified? Is that my goal? Like, is that my heart, for God to be glorified in all things? Or is my heart, well, I know this person, I want them to be happy. Is, is our highest priority happiness? Or is it to glorify the God that all things are aimed to glorify? What is our highest purpose? I believe that his goal was to glorify his father. That was his purpose. Now, sure, he had compassion on these people, and he wanted good things for people. But was that his highest goal? No, I believe bringing glory to his father was his highest goal. So when we pray, even whenever we plead with God for someone to be healed, it, I think it's good to, for us to ask ourselves, is it so that we look good, or is it so that this person lives a nice, healthy, happy comfortable life or is it for God to be glorified and known in all the world what is our goal now again I'm not suggesting that having compassion and praying for people is bad <laughs> that is not what I'm trying to communicate I'm simply suggesting that sometimes we have skewed priorities and our priorities are well we want people to be comfortable not for God to be glorified that needs to be our emphasis. That's what Jesus' emphasis was. So he had compassion on these people because he knew that that would bring glory to his Father. Then notice at the end, of, the end of verse 31 where it says, They gave glory to the God of Israel. Now something interesting here. They know that this isn't their God. They say they gave glory to the God of Israel. 
It's not just they gave glory to God. See, these are not Jewish people. This is Israel's God. They recognize that they are not Jewish people. They are not those of the covenant. And this is going to be really important as we get further into this. So just just remember that these people are giving glory to the God of Israel because they recognize that they were outside of the covenant community. They were outside of that. So they're giving glory to the God of Israel. Now, that's going to just keep that in mind. Verse 32, Jesus says that he has compassion on the people because they've been there for three days. Now they're hungry. And if they go away, Jesus says they're going to collapse because they are hungry. So if they go away, they're not going to make it home. Now, verse 33, the disciples say to him, where could we get enough bread in this desolate place to feed such a crowd? (laughs) How many of you, whenever you read that, just almost laugh? Like, think about this for a moment. Because Jesus has fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish, right? And now they're out here in this desolate place, and they're saying, where are we going to get enough bread to feed all these people? It, it kind of makes me feel like this here, right? How many of you ever use that emoji? Like, this is one of my most frequently used ones. Just like, come on, guys. Like, do you just not get it? Um, I imagine this is how Jesus felt whenever they're sitting around saying, where are we going to get enough bread for all these people? Where are we going to get enough? It's not going to happen. Now, I'm going to give you guys a very simple math equation. I want to see if you can track with this logic, Okay. Jesus has already fed the 5,000. Why would we think he couldn't feed the, uh, the 4,000? Because, simple math equation, 5,000 is greater than 4,000. Y'all think he can do it? Just going to guess he can. Okay? Now, I think there's a few reasons the disciples didn't get it. So, I'm going to be critical of them just because, well, I'm that way. And honestly, I think Matthew's a little critical of them. But, um, and Jesus is going to be critical of them here in a moment. But, I, I think there are some reasons they doubted. I think there are some reasons they didn't think, well, Jesus, because he's just going to do this again. <clears throat> See, because whenever he, whenever he fed the 5,000, it was primarily Jewish people in a primarily Jewish territory. And now they have a primarily Gentile people in a Gentile territory. So the setting has changed pretty drastically. Now, I just think that maybe, maybe the disciples doubted because of the recipients of the blessing, not because of the giver of the blessing. Um, one thing that I think we need to remember is God can bless who he wants, when he wants, how he wants, and it really has very little to do with him and an awful lot, or very little to do with them and very much to do with him. We focus so much on the recipients of the blessing that we focus very little on the giver of the blessing. This is about who the giver is, not who the recipients are, okay? And I think that's part of the reason they doubted or they didn't think he would. And the second reason I think they they failed here. They didn't see that Jesus was about to do something incredible is something I think we all suffer from. And I think it's poor memory. Um, I, now, <laughs> even as I say poor memories, my mother started laughing. Um, y'all, I'm just going to confess, like I, I've always had a terrible memory. It's awful. Like um, it was my parents that had to deal with it as a kid growing up. And now it's my wife who has to deal with it as an adult. I just, I don't remember stuff. I get so distracted by other things. I just forget things, right? Um, and I think that we as Christians have a tendency to suffer from that very thing. We have very poor memories. See, we fail to remember God has done incredible things for us in the past. Incredible things for us in the past. Why would we not think he's going to continue to be faithful in the future? Um, especially whenever you consider he took you from death to life. Why would he not care for the smaller needs? I think these disciples suffered from poor memories. They didn't, either didn't remember or just didn't think he was going to do the same thing, one or the other. But they struggled to think that he was going to do the same thing as before. So verse 34, Jesus asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they responded, seven 
and a few small fish. So this just even got better because now they have more food than they did whenever they fed 5,000 with fewer people. They've got more to start with and fewer people to feed. Like, come on, guys, figure this out. So then Jesus does pretty much the exact same thing he did whenever he fed the 5,000 with very similar principles. Um, So they all sit down. He blesses the food. The disciples then distribute it. And again, the, the miracle is done with Jesus. He's the one multiplying it, but he allows his disciples to participate in the blessing of people. And that is awesome. If you want more on that, go back and read to the, the, the week we talked about um, the feeding of the 5,000 because we hammered on that pretty hard. So if you want more on those principles, go back and listen to that one. It's on Facebook, on our website. We Spotify these things. So anyway, they're out there. You can listen to it. So there's more there. But... He feeds these people, distributes them through the disciples, and the people, they all eat, they're satisfied, and the disciples pick up the left, leftover pieces. Now, there's an important difference that's made here. Whenever they pick up the leftovers, do y'all catch how many baskets full they picked up this time? Seven. It's seven. You remember how many it was whenever you fed 5,000? It was 12. Okay, now, this is, this is bigger than just having fewer leftovers. Um, it's bigger than that. Now, if you remember back to whenever we talked about the feeding of the 5,000, it was really important. I tried, to, I tried to tell you it was really important that there were 12 baskets left over um, because it meant that there was always enough left for the, the disciples, those who were serving. There was enough left for them. And the disciples, in a way, with these 12, they represent, they're representatives of the nation of Israel, like God's chosen people. Even as they distribute this, this there's enough for all of his people. There is enough there for them. Now, maybe the most important thing that we find here with this number seven is that it's not 12. It could have easily been 12 again. Instead, we're not talking about a representation of the nation of Israel. There's more than enough to go around for all people, everyone, even these Gentiles. There is more than enough to go around. See, where participation in the covenant was previously based on race, from here on we see that it's available to all Peoples. Now, I added that S very deliberately. It's, in, it's intended for all peoples because this was God's plan from the beginning, from the very beginning. If you flip all the way back to the first book of the Bible in chapter 12 of Genesis, you're going to find God giving a promise to Abraham. You know what he said he was going to do through Abraham? He was going to be a blessing to all peoples. That's Genesis 12, 3. It says, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. And this is why Jesus commands his followers to make disciples of all nations in Genesis, or not in Genesis, in Matthew 28. We're going to get to it. Who does he say to go to? All nations, all peoples. Whenever you actually go and look at the Greek there, the word that Jesus commands people to go to is all ethne, all ethnic groups. Every person, every tribe, every language. And that's going to be even more important here as we get closer to the end. All peoples is who they are to go to. And Jesus' invitation and extended to all peoples. And again, that may sound very basic and very obvious. And y'all are thinking, Jared, this is elementary stuff. Let's move on. Well, that's fair. We may know that on a cognitive level, but do we really know that? Do we really believe that? Because sometimes we practice as if, well, we needed to be people that look like us, and that's who we're most comfortable talking to. Now, if there's people even in a different socioeconomic group than us, we're uncomfortable going to them and sharing the good news, even though all peoples were Jesus' target audience. All peoples. Jesus extends that invitation to all people. Second factor that we need to understand is that Jesus' invitation, it involves understanding his revelation. 
I know I left the his out, but it involves understanding Revelation. And I'm not talking about the book of Revelation because some of you are thinking, we need to understand Revelation. Um, yeah, I, I get it. But no, we'll get to that later. When I'm not talking about the book of Revelation. I'm talking about what God has revealed about himself. It's important that we understand that. Simply knowing that a God exists is not the same as understanding his revelation. And if you want to know what I'm talking about, go read Romans 1 and you'll get it. Acknowledging, that, acknowledging God's revelation doesn't save you. Understanding and trusting in his revelation does. Those are not the same thing. Three things that we need to see about this understanding of revelation. Now, I'm going to run through this. This is kind of my outline as I thought about this, and I'm going to go through these as fast as I can, y'all. Okay? So, um, three things that we need to know about this understanding of revelation. First, we need to recognize the revelation that has been given. We need to guard against poor interpretation of revelation. And we need to strive to understand the revelation that he's given. Understand that revelation. Okay, now, that's a lot of words, and I, I'm going to run through those again here in just a moment. So, just stay with me. So, the first, we need to recognize the revelation that's been given. Jesus, here he is returned to this Jewish territory, to this place called Magadan. If we can go back to that map for just a moment... Um, Okay, now I told you, he had been outside of Jewish territory up here with Tyre and Sidon, then he was outside of Jewish territory down here in the Decapolis, but now he comes back up here to the Sea of Galilee, there's this city right here called Magadan. That's roughly where scholars believe it would have been located. So now he's coming back to Jewish territory, and that's where this teaching happens. Okay, and in verse 1, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they approached him and they tested him, asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, Pharisees and Sadducees, they don't get along which I think is a little bit humorous because they're coming together now to attack Jesus. They recognize him as a threat. Now, it's one of these whole, uh, you all ever heard the saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend? That's what they're practicing here. They recognize they have a common enemy, so they're coming together against Jesus. Okay? So, they come to get Jesus, and the same thing happens uh, when the scribes and the Pharisees, they approach Jesus all the way back in Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. But Jesus doesn't say, no, you don't get a sign. That's not what he says to him, is it? Verses 2 through 3, he basically tells them, uh, you guys can recognize the color of the sky and what that means, right? Y'all, uh, I remember hearing this whenever I was a kid, uh, red, red sky at morning, sailors take warning, red sky at night, sailors delight. Y'all ever heard that? Um, I, I heard that as a kid, um, and that's basically what he tells them, right? You can read the sky, you get the color of that, but you don't get the signs of the time. In other words, these men, these Pharisees and Sadducees who claim to be religious, who claim to be spiritual, they don't even recognize the sign that is standing right in front of them. Jesus. They don't recognize who he is. And hypothetically, and I know hypotheticals are dangerous, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, let's just hypothetically say that Jesus did perform some miracle for them. Do you think that would have convinced them? I believe the answer is no. These men had already hardened their hearts. Um, Warren Wearsby says it this way. He says, these religious leaders demanded a sign. It is important to remember that miracles do not convince people of sin or give them a desire for salvation. Look, if, if you want scripture to back up the fact that miracles don't save you or don't convince people of their sin, um, I would encourage you to go read Luke chapter 16, um, specifically 19 to 31. And there you're going to find this rich man in Lazarus. Um, and this rich man who had everything in his life goes to be tormented. And he says, he says, just send somebody back to my family. Send somebody from the dead and they'll be convinced. And you know what the response is? They already have Moses and the prophets. If they don't believe them, they're not even going to believe somebody coming back from the dead. The fact is this. Miracles are not going to save a person. Even if they had been given the sign, I don't believe they would have trusted in Jesus. So in verse 4, 
Jesus says, an evil and an adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah. Jesus again, he says, he says this. He says, okay, you want a sign? I'm going to give you one. Wait until you see somebody who dies, and they're in the grave for three days, and then they're raised to life. He said, I'll give you that sign. Y'all ever heard anybody that did that? Uh, yeah, Jesus did it later on. But the point is, we have more than enough of God's revelation. We've already seen enough from God. How much more do we think we have the right to demand? Like these Pharisees and Sadducees, they come to him demanding a sign. Jesus says, I'm the revelation of God. You want to see a sign? The fulfillment of the law is standing in front of you. He says, I'm the sign you need. Look, the problem we have is not that we don't have enough revelation from God. The problem we have is that we don't recognize or understand the revelation we've been given. We don't recognize it and then trust it. We don't recognize who Jesus is. So I told you the first thing, we need to see the revelation that's been given. But the second thing, we need to guard against a poor interpretation of that revelation. Verse 5, the disciples, they reached the other shore and, well, they had forgotten their bread. Okay, so now they're in trouble because they had forgot the very thing that Jesus had just multiplied from seven loaves to 4,000 men plus women and children. And again, I can't help but think at this point, as Jesus knows, they're sitting there talking about like, well, we forgot the bread. And he's just sitting there going, guys, come on. Guys, like, come on, people. And here in verse 6, Jesus told them, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. He says, you guys are so stuck on bread. Fine, here's an illustration using bread. Watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And of course, the disciples don't get it at first. But here's the question. And I think this is interesting. Did the disciples, or I'm sorry, did the Pharisees and the Sadducees, did they have the ability to see Jesus work and to hear what he had to say and then interpret that against the backdrop of Scripture? Uh, yeah, sure they did. But they refused to believe, and they even had the nerve to ask for something greater, somehow ask for more proof of who Jesus was. Now look, we're told throughout Scripture that we need to be on guard, um, that we need to be alert. Um, just an example, Colossians 2.8 says, Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy or empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than on Christ, which is the very thing that these Pharisees are doing. And these Sadducees are doing. We need to ensure that we're not going along with religious-sounding teaching, but that we are interpreting everything through the lens of the revelation of Jesus and his word. We need to be looking at it through that lens. And by the way, um, <laughs> don't be the dope that goes around asking for another sign. <laughs> um, and I can call you dopes if you do that, because I'm the same dope that's done that multiple times. Um, I don't know how many times where I've, I, I, there's been where I've doubted my faith. And I've looked around, I'm like, God, like, just sh show me something here. Like, just show me that you're real somehow. Um, show me that you're there. Like, I don't know how many times I've had the nerve to ask God for another sign. God, prove yourself to me. <laughs> and really, I hope we see how foolish that is. When he's already given us the only sign that we could possibly need. And he says that's called the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah. Um, if you're going to believe someone has the answers to life's biggest problems or the ability to help you in your time of need, um, how about the guy who died and didn't stay dead? How about that guy? Um, he says, I'll give you the sign of the prophet of Jonah. I, I, I'm going to quote Colby one more time just because uh, I, I thought this was really good. Here a couple weeks ago, we were talking to Sunday school. Um, and we were talking about um, 
talking about a simple apologetic, a simple defense for the faith. And why would we believe what Jesus has to say? And I'm not going to quote him exactly because well, I'm not that smart. But um, I, I remember he said something to the effect of, well, why would I believe Jesus? Because Jesus was the, raised from the dead, and I tend to believe people who do that. Like, no kidding. Like, you tell me a guy was dead, didn't stay dead, I'm probably going to believe that guy. I'm going to take his word for it, okay? So this guy was dead, was raised from the dead to new life. And he says, look, I've got the answers to life. Jesus says, here's your proof, the sign of Jonah. Look, so we need to recognize what's been given. We need to guard against uh, poor interpretation of that revelation. But then we need to strive to understand the revelation that's been given to us. Verse 7, these disciples, they start discussing Jesus' statement, and they're still stuck on bread. And Jesus, knowing what's going on in verse 8, says, You of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves that you don't have any bread? Don't you understand yet? Like, come on, guys, don't you get it? And really, as Jesus does this, he's doing just a few things here. First, he's rebuking his disciples. They should have understood by now. They should have understood. They had been with him long enough. They'd heard enough of his teachings. They'd seen enough of what he could do that they should have understood by now. And Jesus has the ability to feed thousands with virtually nothing. And they're still concerned with the bread that he's multiplying. They still don't get it. And Jesus is like, come on, guys. And to steal from the author of Hebrews in chapter 5, verse 12, he writes, Although by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. You need milk, not solid food. These disciples should have been moved on to steak, and they're still needing milk. Jesus says, come on, guys. Jesus expects these disciples to mature. Second thing he's doing here is, I want you to notice the connection between faith and understanding. There is a clear connection here between faith and understanding. See, these disciples are rebuked for having little faith because they have little understanding. They have little understanding of who Jesus is and what he can do. So as our understanding of God's revelation grows, so will our faith. As we understand his revelation, our faith will grow. We can't claim to have a great faith with a little understanding of God's revelation, written or incarnate. So Jesus explains in verse 11 that he wasn't talking about bread. He wasn't talking about bread. But notice that he doesn't tell them what he was talking about. He just says, it's not about bread. It's not what I'm talking about. See, what he's doing here is he's training his disciples to think more deeply about things, to actually think on things. And like normal, Jesus is teaching on something bigger. And then all of a sudden, it's like at the very end of this, in verse 12, the light bulb finally comes on for the disciples, and they get it. Light bulb comes on, and they realize that Jesus was talking about the Pharisees' teaching, not about bread. And now they get that it was a warning against demanding for a particular sign from God or demanding more from God. Instead, they, like we, need to understand the revelation that God has already given us. We just need to recognize the revelation he's already given. So what do we need to understand? Jesus' invitation, it extends to all peoples, and it involves understanding his revelation. So what? Well, so if Jesus extended his invitation to all peoples, why don't we take the good news to those around us? Why would we not? That's who his invitation has been extended to. They have a chance to be saved from their sins. All peoples, all peoples have a chance to be saved from their sins unless they don't hear the good news. Um, now, that's people both here and people around the globe. So that's pretty broad. Um, we need to be those who look forward to the day whenever we get to see the unforgettable, like this unforgettable scene that's described in Revelation. Um, and this is where I told you we would come back to this. Revelation chapter 7, it says this. After this, I looked, 
And there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Look, we oftentimes don't say that because we oftentimes don't recognize what was just said. They are standing before God. They are standing before Jesus, and they are shouting, they're crying out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God. Who does salvation belong to? God. It's his. It's his salvation. And he is seated on the throne and it belongs to the lamb. Um, A few weeks ago, we took time out of our service to pray for the persecuted church. Uh, We took time out just to pray. And hopefully, I don't know if we covered every slot, but we were pretty close to praying for 24 hours around the clock. Um, Now, certainly we're praying for brothers and sisters, Christians who are persecuted around the world. But part of that prayer has to include that many would hear the good news of Jesus. That many would hear the good news through these persecuted brothers and sisters, that they would repent of their sins and that they would be saved. So what do we do as a result of this, uh, of this text? Well, uh, I think that we, one, we pray for those who are needing to hear the gospel. We pray for those who are lost, for all peoples to hear the gospel. And then we support those who do go. And we honestly and sincerely need to ask ourselves if Jesus, if God may be calling us to go ourselves. Um, I have to admit, I don't remember the last time, uh, I do now, but before this week, I don't remember the last time I'd honestly and sincerely asked God, are you, are you calling me to go? To where are you calling me to go? I guess it's not a matter of if he's calling, but where? How? How? When was the last time we actually took a moment and say, God, where is it that you're calling me to go? Um, And I think that if we're going to actually heed this text and we're going to look and see how Jesus extends his invitation to all peoples, I think we need to be at least asking ourselves, God, to where are you calling me to go? Where is it that I need to go? And how can I support those who are going to all peoples? Um, Y'all... This isn't just a weekly thing for us. There are some people that we support that go every day, pretty much year-round. Um, I, I, think about, I think about, well, we had the Munsies. I actually just got a text from, um, from Josh earlier this week in Haiti. We support people in Haiti because they are going to take the gospel to all peoples. Um, I think about Joel Burkham going and doing work in Romania and Moldova, taking the gospel to all peoples. And that's just a start. We support groups that go to Africa. So how can we support those? But then also, how can we go ourselves? I think we need to be honestly asking that question. But see, the invitation, it requires more than just understanding the revelation. And first, we need to understand that it extends to all peoples. But then it requires more uh, than just hearing. But we need to understand the revelation that's been given. And the first step of that is to hear it. See, even the Pharisees and Sadducees, though, they, they saw the revelation from God. They saw that revelation. But we need to go a step further, and we need to understand what that revelation means. And then we trust the revelation that God's given us. And what does all that mean? What does that really mean? That's a lot of language with not really any solid, concrete application. Here's how we can do this. What does all that mean? Well, if I'm being honest, there's too many applications that we can get to um, today. But I'm just going to give you a very basic, very surface-level application of that. Okay? Um, The most foundational way we can trust in God's revelation um, is to see the one that God has revealed as our Savior. Um, I'm just going to read Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, because I think it sums it up well. 
It says, long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In other words, he, he's in the past, long ago. He spoke through prophets. He spoke in a lot of different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son through Jesus. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of His nature, sustaining all things by His powerful word. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. How do we trust the way that God has revealed Himself? Well, while you were a sinner, while you were a sinner separated from God because of your rebellion against Him, Jesus came to be the exact expression of God. Exact expression. And he made purification for your sins. He made purification for you. He lived a perfect life, the only life that was pleasing and acceptable to God, even though we couldn't do that on our own. And then he died in your place as the perfect sacrifice. And by the way, you all should know this by now. On the third day, the story continued. Um, it's like one of those ellipses, right? The dot, dot, dot. He died, dot, dot, dot. Third day he rose. He rose again. And by trusting in that, that revelation of God, by trusting in Jesus, in his death, in his resurrection, we too can have life. Um, look, we don't need another sign to prove it. We don't need something more. We simply need to trust the sign that Jesus has already given. Um, by dying and by being raised again, Jesus proved that the, the grave, like death and sin, didn't have a claim on him. And it doesn't have a claim on anyone who's with him. And because Jesus is alive, we no longer have to be slaves to fear and to death. We don't have to be slaves to sin. You don't have to be. We have victory over sin because of who Jesus is. And Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you really will be free. And see, the reason I think that's so important is because whenever we understand that surface-level application, whenever we understand that surface-level, like, okay, like, Jesus came, lived a life I couldn't live, died the death I deserved, was raised for my justification, whenever we understand that, it changes everything. Whenever you really understand that, it impacts every area of your life. Because now your life belongs to Him. Like, if you trust Him, you're saying that I need the life that He offers, and I can't get it anywhere else. And we trust in that. And whenever we understand that revelation from God, I believe it will change everything. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, um, God, you are truly good. You are the only thing that is truly good. Uh, Lord, if I'm, if I'm being honest and I reflect on my own life, uh, I realize that there's not much good in me. Um, I'll say that differently. There's nothing good in me. I don't bring much to the table other than the need to be saved. So, Lord, for that, uh, I'm sorry. Lord, but I know that you're good. I know that you are good. And while we were still sinners, you died for us. Um, Father, I, we just we praise you for that. Lord, what an awesome truth. What an awesome reality that is. That you loved us. Not because we deserved it, but because you are good. Um, so, Lord, I just, I just want to thank you. Um, Father, and I also want to pray that you would help us, one, to understand the revelation that you've given us, but, two, understand that you have extended your invitation to all peoples. Lord, I don't want to be complacent. Um, instead, I want, 
I want us as a church to be people who see that you've extended that invitation and for us to be a people who would go. So we're continue to just light that fire in us, to stir our hearts, to drive us outward because you extended your invitation to all peoples. Uh, so Lord, whether that means that we need to go across the street or if that means that we need to go halfway around the world, whatever it is, Lord, I pray that we would be faithful in where you're leading us to go. Um, Father, give us the strength, give us the boldness, give us the compassion for people, um, not for their sake, but for yours. Um, Lord, and just let us see you glorified to the ends of the earth. And Lord, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.